Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. From The Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, a look into the weird world of smartphone family plans and whether that might just be the business model of the future. Later, I'll interview Troy Hunt, the creator of a website called Have I Been Pwned, about the state of online security and what you can do if your data has been stolen, which, fun fact, it almost certainly has. But first, this week is the 40th anniversary of what most people agree was the first killer app for the personal computer. Here's what Steve Jobs had to say about it. There have been two real explosions that have propelled the industry forward. The first one uh, really happened in 1977, and it was the spreadsheet. I remember when uh, Dan Feilstra, who ran the company that marketed the first spreadsheet, walked into my office at Apple one day and pulled out this disk from his uh, vest pocket and said, I, I have this incredible new program. I call it a visual calculator, and it became VisiCalc. And that's what really drove, propelled the Apple II to, to the success it, it achieved. So that's from 1996, and Jobs is describing the spreadsheet app VisiCalc. It sounds sort of quaint now, but it's kind of impossible to overstate how big a deal it was when all that number crunching went from pencil and paper to the computer. Christopher Mims wrote about VisiCalc this week, and he's finally back from vacation and here with me now. Hi, Christopher. Hello. I'd like to say it's good to be back, but it's never good to be back from vacation. How was your second vacation? It's good. Not as good as my third vacation is going to be. Where were... <laughs> so I just feel like every other week vacation is kind of the, the right cadence for you. It's very like... It's, it's You have a very specific thing going on here. I like it. It's like an endless summer thing. It's, you never really get back into work mode. I think everybody <laughs> should do this. I'm into it. So, okay. So VisiCalc, why, why did you write about VisiCalc, this 40-year-old software? You know, I, I it's just random. I noticed that it was its 40th anniversary and I had always heard like, oh, VisiCalc is this big deal. I didn't really know why because VisiCalc was announced the month that I was born. I don't know any of that history. And then I found this amazing TED Talk that Dan Bricklin, you know, co-creator of VisiCalc gave and it's it's warm and it's funny, it's informative, it's surprising in the mold of the best TED Talks. And I just realized, oh my God, there's this incredibly deep history here that people are just utterly ignorant of. Like one of the people who I ended up interviewing, Mitch Kapoor, who uh, was the product manager for VisiCalc and then left to create Lotus 123, which is another software package I think a lot of younger people know nothing about, but it was the biggest software company in the world at the time. You know, he said, you know, people just don't know this history and that's kind of my secret weapon. He's an investor now. People just have no idea like what a huge impact spreadsheets of all things had on basically all of personal computing history. Everybody, you know, you wonder like what was really driving adoption, what made the fortunes of Microsoft and Apple and the early IBM PC and a bunch of other companies you may or may not have heard of over and over again bizarrely enough, it was the spreadsheet. Like over and over. Yeah, it, it's such a bizarre thing that I would never... I feel like we take spreadsheets for granted now. It's like a thing that you don't even think about or complain about because it's sort of obnoxious to use Google Sheets. But for like decades, it was the thing that people used computers for. 
which is a very funny thing to think about now. It was why you bought right. a computer, right? So it it it, it Steve Jobs says as in that clip that you had, you know, this launched the fortunes of Apple. He later said in that same interview, you know, if physical had been written for a different computer, you'd be interviewing somebody else right now. It also launched the IBM PC. I mean, people forget that at the time, the IBM PC was a risky proposition. People didn't think Big Blue could do it. And here's an even more obscure piece of history. They had previously come out with a PC called the 5100, which was really like a little tiny IBM mainframe. And it was not selling. You know, the dominant computing platform at the time was made by a leather company. Let's not forget <laughs> that. Tandy. Radio Shack, right? And then Commodore was right behind. Anyway, and then, you know, Apple II eclipsed them all because of VisiCalc. Then the IBM PC eclipsed everyone, including Apple II, because of Lotus 123, which was like a souped-up VisiCalc. And then later, what drove the adoption of Windows was Excel. You got Windows because that's what you needed to run Excel. And the Excel team was driving the feature set on Windows. And Excel launched for the Mac first. And it was also responsible for the early success of the Mac because you had these giant Wall Street auditing firms just literally ordering thousands of Macs. And, and part of the idea was, you know, they were portable. You'd grab that little handle on top and you'd you'd walk over to the firm you're auditing and you'd you'd set up there with Excel version one and do this your is accounting. Back when portable computer meant it was like a, a thousand pound briefcase that you you could actually sort of technically carry around. I like that definition of portable. Yeah, portable meant you didn't need a truck to move it. Right. Okay, so if I'm not mistaken, we we have convinced Dan Bricklin, who you were talking about, to sit at a rest stop somewhere on a road trip he's taking and, and talk to us for a little bit. Yeah, so Dan, just to introduce him, Dan was the designer of VisiCalc. There is a plaque on the wall of the Harvard Business School classroom where he came up with the idea, drew it on a piece of paper. The spreadsheet was, you know, not in all of its particulars, necessarily an intuitive thing. And he was the design genius behind it. Wonderful. Okay, so I am I'm. I think the two of you are, are going to do the, the bulk of the talking here. Can you tell us kind of the, the very earliest story of, of VisiCalc and how all this began? It was the fall after Star Wars, I guess. Boy, I remember going to see the first Star Wars uh, on July 4th, I think it was. So I was a first-year student at the Harvard Business School. And my background at the time was I came, I was a programmer. I had gone to MIT and worked on word processing systems. This is very early on for screen-based word processing and other types of computer things that regular people would interact with as opposed to computer people. So I'm in class. There are about 90 people in each class at Harvard Business School, and you do cases where you're trying to understand a particular business situation. So sitting in class, um, you do your homework, you sit in class, and the professor calls on various people, and you have to examine the case, figure out what's happening, and we have a lot of class participation there. And in, invariably, you know, I would have done some calculations back home, and maybe I made some arithmetic errors. And then as we're doing a discussion, I can't participate as well, because I hadn't got the numbers right, my assumptions were wrong. And with the background in word processing, I'm watching the professor writing with chalk on a blackboard and stuff. And I started to imagine a magic blackboard where you could write numbers and words and, you know, any way you wanted, lay them out to, to try to work out uh, how to do the business situation. And I imagined a magic blackboard where if you erased a number and wrote a new number in, all the others would automatically calculate. Now, 
for me, with a background in word processing, that's just kind of like word wrapping when you cut and paste or add words in the middle of a sentence. And I came from interactive computer systems where you type in two plus two and it writes back four. I wrote programs to do that. So combining the the, the calculating of a programming together with the visual, I had this idea that we could actually build a program that would have this. I know I imagined that my calculator, because we use calculators in those days, had a ball underneath it uh, like a mouse. And I imagined like a head-up display, which is like uh, augmented reality today, but in those days they used them like in fighter planes and stuff. And I imagined being able to type in numbers and sort of see them in the air in front of you kind of like it would be on a blackboard. So you could actually look at somebody straight in the face while you're doing negotiations and you could be doing your what-if calculations right on the spot. That was the epiphany I had about building this and then eventually got connected with Apple and the personal computers of those days. It seems like in retrospect that it was this sort of immediate, obvious, gigantic thing that everybody wanted. But did you know that going in? Like, did you did you have an idea that this might be this sort of monster hit that it turned out to be? If you're an entrepreneur and a developer of something that takes a long time, you have to be optimistic about everything you do. Now, I had been involved in early word processing, which we thought was the most you know obvious thing and all that, and it took a long time to take off. So we had some realism. We thought it would be really important, but we knew to be humble about it because so many other things in technology weren't taking off. Regular people didn't use computers. They made fun of Apple IIs and things like that in those days. Enough people did get it. You'd think that it'd be written up all over the place immediately. The only mention that wasn't because of publicity that was paid for, so to speak, the New York Times had a, a humorous article about that show by a layman. It's called A Layman's Trip to the Mega Mega Land of Computers. And he thought the name was cool. He basically said that he saw them lettering the sign for the booth, the little booth that we were in, VisiCalc. And he said, VisiCalc. You know, all hail Visicalc. He thought it was, you know, putting a new name on the, the Pantheon. And he thought that was funny. He had no idea what it was, of course. Many people who came to the booth got it. They saw what we were doing. And those people then immediately tried to buy it when it came out a few months later. This was June and we showed it. And then it was available in late October. And eventually, within a few years, it was assumed that you knew about this. The time when I knew that we made it is when the Wall Street Journal ran an editorial. The business press started taking things really seriously because Apple was selling computers. They saw that VisiCalc was of interest to people with money. The people with money realized that personal computers with something like a spreadsheet was valuable. So it isn't until you actually use these things and learn how general purpose it is and have other people show you all the different uses. When you first computerize something, something that was that was done by hand or through some other means, and you automate it in a way that makes a more powerful tool, you make it possible to do things that you couldn't do before. It makes the, in essence, impossible possible, or the possible much easier. What's fascinating to me, though, is that I think like with a lot of things, you have this sort of first moment where something is newly possible, and it's huge and exciting. But Christopher, as you and I were talking about before, the spreadsheet was the killer app for so many technological advancements in a row. I mean, the Microsoft and Windows in part was successful because of 
the way that it did spreadsheets. And the the folks that came after you were successful because of spreadsheets. And IBM was in part successful because of spreadsheets. And like, what what is it about spreadsheets that even as they evolve, continue to be incredible for people? Well, there seem to be certain activities that we do as humans that are very common and general purpose. The the spreadsheet, as as I conceived the subset of things that you could do with a computer and chose what was easy, what was hard, what restrictions it had, what restrictions it didn't have, you know, the, the mix of features, the particular set. I aimed it for the type of things you do in business where you have lists of things, you have words that may be associated with each other, like in lists or you know, in different places with numbers, mixing numbers and words, using lists of them, but in a non-rigorous way. In other words, it's not like a database where you have records that all have the same fields, etc. Spreadsheets much more general than that. I mean, we've been keeping, as human beings, we've been keeping lists of things for you know thousands of years. You know, you can find clay tablets with stuff like that, and you know, being able to to visualize stuff in a two-dimensional manner like that to organize pieces of data of some sort is an important fundamental thing that we as human beings do. It's a way of us using paper and then eventually the computer, well, first (laughs) clay tablets maybe or slates (laughs) and then, you know, well, it's true. It's true. Dan, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, the earliest writing was let's tabulate, you know, the, the how many sacks of grain the king has. So it's this incredibly basic activity, which you then computerized your co-founder, you know, when I interviewed him about this, he said that one of the ways he thought of a spreadsheet was it was a way to make programming accessible. And and I wonder if you could comment on that because, you know, computers were originally thought of as number crunching machines, as tabulators, you would, you know, the army would use them to calculate tables for how far to shoot your artillery shell you know, or how, how do we get a, how do we get a person on the moon? That kind of that's, thing. That's the reason, that's the reason they built computers. You know, the original funding of the computers was specifically to do artillery. You know, it's a fundamental thing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was, I was wondering the extent to which you thought of a spreadsheet as the original way to make programming accessible because, because it's, it's versatile enough that you, can you know you you can create a simple set of instructions and and you can program something that that's that's going to instantly recalculate and give you a result. So here I merge the concepts of doing simple numeric calculations and like a calculator doing it, and together with having all the different variables that you need, all the different numbers that you would deal with, being laid out in a way that is that's visual and being able to easily instruct the computer in a way that seems natural to you. There are people who thought it was like English, they said, or it felt so natural to use, but we made the interface uh, appropriate to the task and not to what the computer needed. It allowed you to be able to represent things in a way that was easier to understand by regular people. It was not powerful enough to do a lot of the things programmers wanted, but it did enough that a business person or a person who would do the type of things that a business person would want to do needed. 
And it is amazing how, you know, four, four decades in, that really is still sort of the fundamental problem we're solving with computing. It's like how to, how to make computers work the way people does is still a thing that I hear people talk about driving at all the time. Yeah, well, that's, you know, we're still doing word processing. You know, even if we're typing it to Twitter, you know, we're still doing some word processing, yeah, right? You know, there's some basic type of things. You know, a lot of the stuff we have, you know, went back to some of the early days of computing because there are some normal things that human beings do that you need some tools for or methods of doing it. And whatever medium we have, we figure out how to use that medium to facilitate those type of operations. All right. Well, Dan, you have a road trip to finish and, and unfortunately we got to move on to, but thank you so much for being here. This is, this is really great. And, you know, congrats on, on 40 years. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Okay. Take care. All right. Take care. Thanks, Dan. Bye-bye. Let's move on. So family plans have become a common way people manage their cell phones. It's just cheaper to have a bunch of people on one plan instead of having your own. But Here's the funny thing about the family plan. It's not just for families. Roommates and neighbors and colleagues and other groups are all pitching in on a cell phone plan together. So is this just the way of the future? Julia Carpenter, a journal reporter who writes about money, recently wrote about the rules of the family plan. She's here now in the studio. Hi, Julia. Hey, thanks for having me. So I, I feel like with, with stories like this, I always like to start at the very beginning, which is what, what put you on this story? Why did you start writing about the family plan? This was a conversation I was having with my editor, Beret, about the things that you do that don't make sense on paper, but you do them because they're just cheaper. It's just the better <laughs> financial decision. And this was one that we kept talking about again and again and again, that people stay on their family plans longer, even if you live by yourself now or live in a different state than your family or live far away from the people that you're on the family plan with or don't even talk to them anymore, you stay on the family plan with them just because it is so much cheaper than getting your individual plan. Interesting. So are, are we all on family plans? Christopher, I assume you are because you have... I am not because I just oh. use... I, I'm on the... Uh, the the, are you on the Edge the, plan? Uh, Dow Jones family plan. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because it's from my research, I was reading one survey that says 70% of postpaid customers are on a family plan. It's something like 28 or 29% are then on individual plans, and then the 1%, 2% are on corporate plans. Wait, that's a huge number on family plans. Wow. So I'm a, I'm a member of the 1% here. That's wild. Okay, so wait, Julia, are you on a family plan? I am, yeah. So I'm 28. I'm the oldest of five kids, and we're all on the family plan. Yeah. And my girlfriend has actually been trying to get me on her plan, but it's just so much – it just doesn't make sense for me financially to do that. Like, I can't I can't look away. That's also, like, a big step. I feel like that's equivalent to, like, getting a dog is when you get a family plan together. I actually was talking about that with somebody for the course of this story, like, getting on the family plan. We live together, and yet for me, like, sharing a cell phone plan with her feels like it's a – a bigger step in that way. <laughs> is is the family plan the new domestic partnership? Right. Ooh, Interesting. That's good. Interesting. I like that. I actually was trying to find, for the purposes of this story, I was really trying to find married people who were who were not on a plan together, were on separate plans. And it didn't end up working out that it, it ended up in the story, but I did talk to one lady who she is married. 
her husband has an individual plan, and then they decided she would stay on the family plan because it just made more sense. Yeah, so I'm, I am I got married about a year ago, and my wife and I were talking about whether to get our own family plan. We're each on, we're each on our own individual family plan, uh, and she's one of seven siblings, and they have, they've yeah. devised this very sort of complicated math where once a quarter her dad sends out how much each person owes for the bill. Um, and I'm on a family plan wow. with my parents and my sister – uh, and now my nephew, who has been added to the family plan. And right. we made this rule a long time ago that basically, I don't know. I don't know if this is an official rule or not. And my, my dad listens to this podcast and, and may change the rule after hearing me say this. But <laughs> the rule seemed to work out that, like, I manage the family plan and 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 he pays for the family plan, which has worked out very well. How did you become the manager of it then? Are you just the oldest or were you the one who, like, knew the most about the plan? It was because I knew the most about the plan and because when I started writing about tech, I became sort of obsessive about upgrading my phone every five minutes. And I think it just – I got so creative with working Verizon to get phone upgrades that my dad eventually was just like, forget it. Just you deal with the plan. You can handle your stuff. So, yeah, so we talked about do we combine our family plans and basically decided that it was easier and cheaper for both of us to stay on our own family plans than to create our own for our family. And, like, when we have kids, who knows whose family plan they'll go on? It's just – it's this very strange world that we live in now. I talked to one guy for the story. It's – well, what I was going to say is it's interesting to me how the family dynamics or the group dynamics, depending on who you're on the family plan with, affect – the family plan. Like I was interviewing one guy for the story who he and his entire family had been on a family plan and then his parents split up. And so they all then had to figure out what they were doing. Like they weren't, which which did kind of prompt me to think like there have to be, and I couldn't find them for the purposes of this story, but there have to be exes on family plans, which I find super Oh, oh for sure. I mean, haven't we seen multiple stories about exes sharing Netflix. other forms of accounts? I mean, I, I share my Netflix account with my ex and really? it's it's it works great but it's but netflix is like built for it because you can create as many accounts as you want right it was a big moment in my family when we actually kicked my sister's ex-boyfriend off of netflix. <laughs> oh, it was like man. a group text message went out that was like we are changing the password <laughs> it's a big deal yeah it, does everybody approve of this and we're all like yes and then you get yeah, the sheepish yeah. text from the ex who's like hey can i get your netflix password <laughs> Uh, wow, right. were you the ex? Because that was so convincing just now, Pierce. I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying that has happened to me before. Walk two moons, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, so give us a sense of, of what kinds of people you found who are doing family plans who are not right. families. Right. So the central characters in my story They're this group of Jesuits, some priests, some brothers, which I had to make sure I got right because when I was drafting the story, I was like, eight priests on a family plan. He was like, not actually accurate in terms of of title. But (laughs) they they have been sharing this family plan. Sounds like the beginning of like a really bad joke. You know, so many people said that should have been the lead (laughs) to my story. (laughs) So many people were telling me that. But it's for the purposes of their family plan. They, some of them get off of it depending on where they're sent by the order. So if they're sent out of the country or sent somewhere else on mission, for example, and then other people will get on it when they come out of novitiate, which is the first stage of Jesuit training. But they're all sharing this family plan. I, at one point, there were 10 of them on the family plan. And then 
at that point, too, they all migrated from AT&T to T-Mobile, which sounds like it was a really huge endeavor. But they were on... So is T-Mobile officially endorsed by right, exactly, the Jesuits right. and or the Church? <laughs> right, exactly. The plan for priests. They all moved because they were, they were trying to stay in this 10-person plan, and they were trying to find kind of the best deal for it. But I was also really interested that when they take... The, the vow of poverty that all Jesuits take, they interpreted that vow of poverty as meaning that they would not have individual property. And so sharing the family plan was a way to like keep those costs down and like live up to their to their mission as Jesuits. Wow. So no joke, it really is endorsed by the church. Right. If, if only right. indirectly. Yeah, it was super interesting to talk to them about it because they've they've had it now for more than 10 years, had this plan formation. So what do you yeah. think the carriers think about this? I mean, did, did you talk to the, the folks who were actually allowing these family plans? What do they know? I mean, what was really interesting to me talking to Verizon about this is that they – so I was asking them basically, why is the family plan so much cheaper? Like why why is it just such a better deal to be with four right. people? Because they're clearly incentivizing people to Exactly, do yeah. It's like the obvious right decision. Exactly. And, you know, they're also really cognizant too that the family plan, quote unquote, you know, it's not always families. And I, this isn't maybe specifically because of that, but even T-Mobile now, you know, their family plans are called Magenta plans. And Sprint for a long time – they don't have this anymore, but they had the family plan, which is meant to be like friends and family. Oh, yeah. So they know family totally. Plan. So they're like super aware that groups of coworkers, groups of friends, you know, groups of neighbors, like people who aren't like our traditional, our traditional family are using the family plan for this reason. And I spoke with Angie Klein, who's their vice president of marketing. And she was saying that the reason the family plan is so much cheaper, and this made total sense to me, is because the account support costs are so much lower for them. If they have just one person that they're dealing with one bill that they're sending as opposed to 10 bills with the case of the Jesuits, that that's just, uh, that's just keeping costs down. But there's also another benefit to them too. It, it like incentivizes brand loyalty. It keeps a whole family, you know, some kids getting on as early as 10, they were telling me, getting their first cell phone at 10. And then their dad is on Sprint, you know, they're on Sprint and then everybody's on Sprint. And it's, it's an easy way for them to kind of like build that brand loyalty really early. Part of what made me wonder, like, is this the, the business model of the future for everyone. Because it is, you, you mentioned Netflix before, and it yeah. is, there's something similar yeah. to this thing there. It's like, it's sort of unofficially happening for Netflix, but like Spotify has family plans now. Like, do you think that, do you, do you buy that? Is the family plan the future of everything? Totally. I think that one, one part of my brain while I was researching this story, because I was thinking about a story Sarah Krauss had written related to Netflix password sharing and especially I think she was talking specifically about streaming sharing, you know, like um, Netflix, HBO Go, Hulu, mm-hmm. that were just really comfortable sharing these things. And I was trying to think about other things that I share. Like I share all of my streaming. My girlfriend and I share a Spotify. You know, I share my family plan. Like there's very little that I wouldn't be comfortable sharing in that way. Maybe not social media, but – I could, you know, you think about the parents who share Facebooks, like it's kind of a similar instinct. I can kind of get it. Yeah, my my in-laws still technically share an email address, and that feels very wild to me. But it is true that there are more and more things that are, that just feel like they are sort of communal goods that like, of course, you can have my cable login so that you can get the History Channel app or whatever. Like these, it does feel like the, the boundaries for all that are going down. Yeah, we live in an era of shared calendars, group chats. Like these are all just means of, I mean, I guess it's the, in the old days, you it's the neighborly thing to do. You share a cup of sugar, but now we just have all these virtual goods to share. 
I mean, I know people who share like Prime in this way. Mm. So I have an elderly neighbor who cannot drive anymore because she lost her vehicle. She's 80. And I was like, and the other day I was just talking, I was like, how do you get groceries? And she's like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so down the street, I tell her what I need and she orders it for me. That's great. Through Amazon delivery. And I was like, oh, wow. That's okay. great. That's great. I mean, it makes sense. And I mean, what it sounds like you're saying also is that increasingly companies are going to be fine with this. Like the point you make about customer service and account support and brand loyalty and stuff, that applies to all of these things we're talking about, right? Like that that seems like good news. Yeah. I mean, I did not talk to them for this story, but sure. I would assume that Netflix wants you to all be watching the same show. Like Netflix is fine with you sharing an account as long as you're all watching Netflix and talking about it. Right. Because then as long as one of you still wants to watch Netflix, you're going to keep Netflix. Right. And then you're Netflix people and you're not Hulu people, you know? True. Or you're everything. Right. <laughs> right. In the case of my house. <laughs> as, as I think we probably all are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean, with the case of cell phones, that's especially true. They would rather six of you all be Verizon people and none of you be AT&T people. There was a, a sidebar in the story that I really liked where you had kind of the, the rules of how to manage the family plan. Like what were – give us a couple of the the sort of practical tips you had here. Yeah, yeah. One of them is is the big one, and that's the one we've already we've already talked about in talking about your situation. But one person really needs to be the administrator. Mm. In talking with everybody for this story, that that became really clear to me that one person has to like quote unquote own the account, even if they're not the person who first set it up or is like like you, you what you were talking about with your father, like the person who's like primarily handling the billing. They're the person who portions out. You know, oh, okay, like so and so used up this much data this month, so-and-so got a new phone, you know, this other person made an international call. They're the one who kind of like squares it. You know, when I was speaking with the Jesuits, they called it balancing the checkbook. But that's one person who's kind of owning that experience. And that having having one person take charge of that seems like a really important step just for clarity. And then the other thing is that that person then just needs to make sure that all of the costs are transparent, whether that's like sharing a Google spreadsheet around or like a Google Doc around or, you know, sending out a group text with the charges every month, like something where nobody feels like they're in the dark and that the administrator isn't, you know, controlling things nefariously. Um, and then the other thing, too, is that everybody needs to be on some sort of payment system that makes it easy for that administrator, kind of that two-way street. So I, I was speaking with people. Yeah, chasing your family for money is Right, not right. Or your neighbors or your coworkers or whoever whoever's on the plan right, with you, true. your exes. But but something that's really simple, like Venmoing or, you know, PayPaling, like something that's not hard for the administrator to get, you know, not like cash dropped off at their desk or something. And once that all of those steps are in place, then the most important one is that everybody just to, needs to make sure they're paying on time. And the point I make in the story is that you are really the one benefiting from paying on time because if you're the late person who's never paying on time, you're going to get kicked off the family plan. And like as my story kind of proves, you're just going to be paying more when you're on an individual plan. Right. And your life just becomes a nightmare because who wants to be on their own plan? Yeah, it's like so much more expensive, right? <laughs> yeah, you're just throwing money away, basically. But you are in charge of just yourself. I don't know. I can't really see the merits of it. And I've, like I said, I've talked about this with my girlfriend. Like she doesn't have to, you know, if, if somebody in her family has some sort of drama with the cell phone plan, like she's insulated from it because she has her own line, which I can kind of get. Back in the day, I remember when we first had our family plan, it was this big issue because my sister 
would always use our whole text allotment and then like 10 times more than our text allotment because she was like in high school and cool and I was in middle school right. and didn't have any friends. And uh, so she they always she always had to like pay her whole allowance back to my parents because she was sending too many texts. Uh, and luckily I think that's less of a problem and probably harder to police now. But it is a very funny like window you get into people's lives when you're like, boy, you made a lot of phone calls this weekend. Yeah. What's going on yeah, with you? You use the most data. Yeah, right. right. Like, what you downloading. Right. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we should move on. But Julia, thank you so much for being here. This this is really fun. And whatever awesome. other thank weird you things me. you guys were talking about with your editor, all the ways people save money that are crazy, you're going to have to come back on and we're going to have to talk about all those too. Definitely. Definitely. Thank awesome. you for having me. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, guys. Okay, coming up in just a second, my interview with Troy Hunt about Have I Been Pwned and the state of your data online, which is scarier than you think. But first, it's time for our weekly segment, Today I Learned, in which one of us brings something interesting or insane we learned this week. Christopher, you've been gone, so it's your turn. What do you got? All right, so today's Today I Learned comes from the resort town Wildwood, New Jersey. They have a little museum called the Doo-Wop Museum, chronicles the Doo-Wop era, which is 1950 to 1959. And I ran the into an old man thing in who Wildwood, was, New Jersey, by the way. What's that? That is the least tacky thing I've ever heard of in Wildwood, New Jersey, by the way. <laughs> right. <clears throat> One of the uh, the docents there who clearly remembers the doo-wop era. <laughs> I had a conversation with him about the following facts, which really blew me away, which is that um, so we often think of automation as a consequence of just technological progress and employers wanting to just, you know, get rid of workers, whatever, break the back of unions. But what you see over and over again all over the world is automation happens principally because you just can't hire enough humans to do the necessary jobs. And so what I didn't realize was the really big wave of automation that hit the U.S. and turned us from an agrarian society where you know a, a majority or a significant minority of people were working on farms to a, a manufacturing or an industrial one happened during World War II because there were so many millions of men at the front and, and women being employed in the, in the wartime effort. And we needed automation and machines to replace them. So people came back and their jobs were usurped by machines and, and we had become a manufacturing society. And because we were becoming a consumer society, we had all these awesome new consumer goods that came out of technologies invented during the war to purchase, like stuff made out of aluminum, nylon and synthetic fabrics. Uh, obviously, you know, the first computers came out of the war effort and had an impact later on. So basically, instead of having too many workers and thus needing automation, we had not enough workers and thus needed automation, which is like the opposite of how we talk about it now. Yeah, it turns out that really is the pattern. So if you look at the most automated countries, South Korea, Germany, Japan, it's all because they're running out of workers. China, wages are rising and they have their own kind of demographic challenges there. And I think what makes it really relevant to the modern day is, of course, we're at, depending on who you ask and the definition you use, we're at full employment. And, you know, you see people scrambling for workers all over. And so I think we are in a new era of automation, potentially, because, uh, you know, it's not the scale of World War II, but people are hard up for humans. Right. And now to do new things, we're going to have to find ways to do it that don't involve humans. Yeah, absolutely. 
which means maybe someday I'll be able to afford my rent in San Francisco. This is very exciting. Okay. Uh, by the way, I like your your dog seems to have many, many thoughts about automation <laughs> and technology. I'm a big fan of that. Yep, absolutely. Okay. So next up, how to find out whether your data has been stolen, which again, it almost definitely has, and what you can do about it. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high volume, high speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Welcome back. If you've never done this before, get out your phone or laptop and go to the website haveibeenpwned.com. The last word is like owned, but with a P instead of an O. It's an internet thing. Enter your email and see what comes up. Let me actually do this right now while we're sitting here. Haveibeenpwned.com. I'll put in my email. It says, oh no, pwned. That's rough. According to this, my email has been found in 18 different data breaches. Let's see. There's Adobe and Dropbox and Gawker and Kickstarter and a bunch of others I don't even recognize here. I don't think I ever played the game Ebony, but somehow my email's in there. Anyway, I bet your email's in a breach somewhere too. Hopefully not 18 for your sake, but who knows. Have I Been Pwned is run by a guy named Troy Hunt. He started the site about five and a half years ago as a way to help people understand how safe or frankly, more likely unsafe, their data really is. And since then, Have I Been Pwned has become this hugely important tool for people and companies and even governments to monitor what's happening to their information. And now Troy is thinking about what's next. But when I called him in the middle of his trip to Norway, I first wanted to know how this works. So a hacker gets into Equifax or Adobe or Home Depot or whatever other website data, and they take some outrageous number of usernames and passwords. Where does that data go? And how does it end up on Have I Been Pwned? It's changed a bit over time. So back in 2013, when the Adobe breach happened, the data sort of filtered out there. It was socialized through various channels. There's a lot of private chat rooms and things out there, a lot of people circulating things between close-knit circles. And one of these links sort of came across my path in terms of, of the data. So I went and grabbed the data and had a look at it. These days, and in fact, to be honest, for the most of the duration of the project, very soon after I launched it, most of the time I get data, it is people sending it to me. Hmm. So people will pop up out of the blue, literally on average once or twice every single day, I'll have someone reach out and say, hey, I've got data from this website. You probably want to go and put that and have a been pwned. Wow. Or they'll say, look, there's some exposed data over there. And I mean, I'll give you a really good example. I'm dealing with one literally today where someone had their entire user database sitting in a text file on their website. And it was literally listed for download. Accidentally, they screwed up the configuration. But it was all just sitting there. And someone popped up and said, hey, look, I, I downloaded this data. I, I think you should add it to have a been pwned. And this just happens like every single day, over and over and over again. And I would guess that the pace of that, as you're kind of describing, is just continues to go up. Like, I would assume you're getting more of this stuff every day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Look, it is an absolute fire hose of data. One of the fascinating things about it, and frankly, one of the sort of exciting things about it as well, is you just never know what's going to happen next. Like, I'll get up tomorrow, and there'll be an email in my inbox, and there'll be a link to download 50 gigabytes of data, and there's 200 million <laughs> records in it. 
and that will be the end of my day, you know, because that's going to take a lot of processing work. But this happens just over and over and over again. I was reading just today a story about a, a white hat security researcher who found more than 2 billion records from IoT devices publicly exposed on the Chinese manufacturer's website. And yeah, that's more than 2 billion records. That's it's just it's a massive amount of data. And that's what I wonder. I mean, you've been doing this for six or so years now, and it seems like the answer to have I been pwned is just yes, definitely. Of course, <laughs> yeah. <you have. laughs> so does it does the point of have I been pwned change at some point when it goes from like, you know, this this a couple of leaks that happened to like, this is happening constantly all the time, you have no idea the scale of it? So people have been saying, look, just change the website just to say yes. Like, take all the processing work out of it. Just say yes. You'll save yourself a heap of time. easier for you, yeah. I think, if anything, the relevance of it is actually increasing. One of the reasons for that is people are becoming a lot more conscious about the privacy of their data. Now, in Europe in particular, we've, we've got recent regulations from last year that give people back a lot more power to control their data and who has it and what they can do with it. And I find people are becoming a lot more conscious about where the data is being exposed. They want to know who has it. They want to know what's happening to it. And, and frankly, there's also a part of this which is just simple curiosity. I have found myself in multiple data breaches I didn't even know I had an account on. I loaded a data breach a few months ago from a service called House, which as best I can remember, because I can't remember actually creating the, the account, was to use this service to look at sort of housing design things. And I had completely forgotten I even had an account there. So I was, okay, I was surprised, but I was happy that Have I Been Pwned actually told me after I loaded the data that, hey, Troy, you're, you've been pwned on the house data breach. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I did give those guys my data. <laughs> well, and I also wonder, I mean, it, it, part of what's interesting to me about Have I Been Pwned is that it, it seems like the first step is to sort of make people realize that that things are not as safe online as, as we once thought. And, and I agree, it's actually been my experience too, that people are coming around to understanding how this stuff works and how they should control it more. But then there's kind of this second step, and I, I encounter this all the time, where it's like, oh, you know, Equifax leaked everyone's information, and there's really nothing you can do except just kind of shrug and move on with your life. Like, have you have you found sort of the right steps that you tell people to take? I mean, this seems like a, a part of what you want to do in the future with too, and we're going to get to that. But like this thing where it's like, okay, I have, my number was 18. I'd been in 18 breaches. And it's like, what am I supposed to do with that other than sort of be afraid and close all my tabs and flee to the woods forever? <laughs> well, see, you know, there's, there's that. That's, that, that's the side. By the way, that doesn't make the data go away. <laughs> like it's still there. One of the things that I've found really interesting about Have I Been Pwned is that a message that I keep getting from Everything from journalists through to mums and dads through to law enforcement is that the educational value of Have I Been Pwned is fantastic because it materializes the risk to people. Mm. So I'll give you a good example. So I recently did a, a talk at a law enforcement conference and, and after I did the talk, and also that was funny too because I'm doing this talk and there's like 500 cops and so on in the room and I went, oh, I'm about to talk about all the illegally obtained data that I've got. <laughs> oh, I hope they let me out of here. But they're fine. They're lovely people. And a bunch of them said, look, we use Have I Been Pwned really extensively. And I was like, wow, okay, that's, that's really interesting. What do you do? And they said, well, we use it a lot internally for internal training programs so people are aware of the fact that there are data breaches. 
most people have appeared in one or two of them. So that sort of hits home and they start to go, oh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't reuse that same password everywhere. So that's sort of the, the big PSA of have I been mm. pwned, right? The like, if there's one step people should take when they get afraid and find stuff on this website, it's stop reusing passwords. It feels like the most sort of straightforwardly useful thing you can tell people to do. Look, it does. And I would say that is the most significant PSA out of all of this. I would also say that as simple as that mantra sounds, there is a lot of difficulty in actually executing on that. And look, I see all the time people say, hey, I've just been in a data breach. Does this mean I have to go and change all my passwords? And it's like, well, only the ones that are the same. And they're like, yeah, that's all of them. <laughs> so, you know, now now I have, like, I've, I've just been on, a, yeah, let's say for arguments, like I've been on Cat Forum and Cat Forum just got breached. And I was only on Cat Forum to talk about, like, what sort of food I should give my cat. Does this mean I need to go and change, like, my email account password and my bank account password, my social media account password? And it's like, well, yeah, because now, because you wanted to figure out what to feed your cat, you've literally put your email account at risk. And your email account is the skeleton key to every other account because that's the account that lets you do password resets and everything. So you've got to move beyond this password reuse problem. Now, one of the big issues we've got in the industry at the moment is a form of attack called credential stuffing. And what attackers do is they get a whole bunch of different data breaches. They get the email address and the password from the data breach, and they build them into massive lists. So imagine billions and billions of rows of email address and password pairs. And then they just blast those at other websites, random websites, as far as they know. I mean, they don't know if the user has an account on, say, Spotify, for example. But they'll blast it at that and go, okay, which ones stick? Which ones actually work? Because password reuse is so prevalent, we know we're going to get a bunch of accounts, and they're now going to be ours. And this only works because of password reuse. So, okay, so that's actually a good segue, because one of the things I wanted to ask about as you look towards the future of Have I Been Pwned is, I think what you called the collection number one credential stuffing list, which seems like, for you, it was kind of a, a turning point in how you think about this project. So tell me, tell me that story. So collection one, well, I'm still recovering from collection one. So <laughs> in the middle of January, I had several people pop up and say, hey, look, you should have a look at this. It's a very, very large credential stuffing list. And what it turned out to be is about 773 million unique email addresses, over a billion combinations of email address and password, because very often the same email address was there with different passwords I'd used in different places. And interestingly, about 23 million unique passwords. And if that doesn't tell the story, nothing else does. So think of that. You've got 773 million unique email addresses, but only 23 million of the passwords are unique. So not only are individuals reusing the same password themselves over and over again, they're using the same passwords as other people too. So maybe they've both got cats with the same name or they went to the same school or they, they chose some other really bad arbitrary password based on some sort of personal experience, which is common to other people. So collection one is a very, very large list of data. I parsed it all out, loaded up in a have I been pwned, and then I had about 10 million people come to the website in a day. Wow. So, and is your sense that this problem of data breaches, are we ever going to get better at this? I mean, as a, as a, an internet society. I mean, you mentioned GDPR and we have regulations that are about to change this. Is it, are, are we ever going to get to a world where have I been pwned is, is a less obvious yes? Look, I can't see it because all of the factors that are leading to data breaches 
just leading to more of them. Uh, so, for example, we have more systems. There is a greater attack surface. That's that's inarguable. We have more online services that can be breached. We have IoT now as well. Gee, IoT is a great sort of you know, goldmine of different data breaches, particularly given so much IoT stuff gets rushed out. And there's a bunch of IoT data already in Have I Been Pwned. Uh, Cloud Pets, for example, this is like literally teddy bears you connect to the internet. And by the way, they stored all the kids' voices and data in a database facing the web, so not firewalled away, and they didn't have a password. Now, we didn't have that problem even just five years ago. I don't think we had IoT teddy bears (laughs) five years ago. So IoT is making it worse. Cloud, for all the great things about cloud, and I love cloud, It makes the problem worse insofar as people can now get access to very large repositories of storage very, very quickly with very little effort, very little expertise, and they can screw it up very quickly and do it almost for free. Interesting. Yet you don't sound totally hopeless about this. Like I I almost expected you to be sort of completely defeated by dealing with this for so long, but you you don't seem to have been totally defeated by it. Yeah, and I think the key is how can we do good things with this data now that the incident has happened? I sort of lament when I see people say, well, yeah, this is this is stolen data. It should be illegal to do anything with it. I'm not actually sure that stolen's even the right word. I had a motorbike that was stolen once, and I didn't have the motorbike afterwards, after <laughs> it got stolen. After data gets, quote unquote, stolen, there's not the same amount of it. There's actually more of it because it's just replicated over and over again. And the reality of it is the organization normally still has the data, there's just more copies of it. We're seeing many of the world's largest tech companies use breach data very proactively. And a great example is just last week, TripAdvisor started telling people, look, you are using a username and password combination from another data breach. We're going to invalidate this password and cause you, or force you rather to reset it mm. because you're now at high risk. Now, this is a great example of proactively, ethically, responsibly using data that was obtained illegally in the first place, but now using it in a way to better protect people. Right now, Troy's in the midst of trying to find a buyer for Have I Been Pwned. He's hoping to work with someone to collect even more data and use it to help more people online. He's calling it Project Svalbar, named after the global seed vault in the Arctic Circle that's supposed to help us restart our food supply in the case of disaster. Before he gets to any of that, though, like Troy said, if there's one takeaway from Have I Been Pwned, it's this. Use unique passwords and never use them twice. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks to Troy, Julia, Dan, and Christopher for being here. Thanks to Anthony Green and Becca Weinman, our producers this week, and Wilson Rothman, our editor, always. Most of all, thank you for listening. We have new episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message anywhere you get your podcasts. And as always, if you have feedback or ideas, email us at instantmessage at wsj.com. We'll talk to you soon. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.